through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson. On FBI 94.5. Hello there, FBI radio listener. Correct, it is Joey Watson here. And this show, Out of the Box. Every Thursday from midday to one, I get to sit down with one person and talk through the stories from their life and the records which have defined them. Today, Sarah Mansour. Sarah was born in Punchbowl in Sydney's West. And as a young Muslim woman born into a Lebanese-Australian family, she's experienced all the challenges that have been thrown at Middle Eastern migrants in Australia this millennium. Against this backdrop, she became a student, a lawyer, a creative, and above all this, a poet a slam poet to be exact, and in the suburb of Bankstown she's built an entire community around it. Armed with the passions of slam poetry, community and social justice today, Sarah Mansour, a warm welcome to Out of the Box. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Sarah, when I was preparing for this interview I was dragged into the world of slam poetry and particularly how it's being used by migrant communities and uh, Muslim um, communities uh, as well mm. uh, and I was introduced to this relationship between the Quran and poetry and mm. it's not something that I'd heard of before and I was wondering if off the top we could talk uh, in theological terms a little bit a little bit about that yeah sure so growing up um, part of our Saturday rituals were to go to Arabic school and half of the time that we spent as at Arabic school was memorizing Quran and uh, something that many people don't know about the Quran is it's actually a body of poetry a lot of it rhymes um, and it has a beautiful kind of tempo and pace so um, growing up part of the fabric of um, my religious identity was memorizing this Arabic poetry. And so that kind of really led well into my creative expression as a spoken word artist and memorizing my work. Wow. Do you think that's something that a lot of slam, Muslim slam poets think about? I'm not sure. I think it's something that is kind of subconscious. Um, there's definitely a link there. I only came to the realization when I was actually talking about it with um, friends and kind of discussing why we found it so much easier to memorize our work than other people. And I think we made the link that way. Wow. If we can take this um, back quite a few years, Sarah, mm. could we begin? Could you begin by telling me a bit about what happened to your dad when he was 10 years old? And he yeah. was dragged out of school. Yeah, so he was dragged out of school. Uh, he had to work at his dad's petrol station. And um, apart from getting really bulky and muscly because he had to pump gas, um, I think he also kind of had to learn how to fend for himself. So um, after a few years, he actually moved by himself to Europe and spent um, most of his late teens and early 20s uh, living and working for himself in Europe. Um, experienced some kind of discrimination there as well, because this is kind of like the 80s, and then um, ended up migrating to Australia. How, why did he come to Australia? He actually got married. And who, and who did he marry? His cousin. <laughs> <laughs> really? How did that happen? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think he was just kind of pulled into it they were like hey marry your cousin and you can go to Australia and he's like all right sounds good <laughs> when how did he come to meet your mother um well that's actually a super funny story um so after things didn't work out with his cousin uh, as, you might expect as you might expect because <laughs> I had no other bond or connection um he actually went back to Lebanon 
and he was sitting on the balcony and he saw this like hot chick walking on the street. They lived on a main strip and she looked up and saw this guy sitting on her best friend's balcony. And so she just shouted out, hey, is Lena home? And he took one look at her, like dimples and boobs. And he was like, <laughs> yes, sure she is, come up. And so um, she came up, they got introduced to each other. And he begged her to go to the disco that night. And she was like, no, I don't want to go. And um, uh, my auntie convinced her to go because otherwise she wouldn't be allowed to go. And then they went to the disco, they had a ball. And on the drive home that evening, he proposed to her. Wow. <laughs> what circumstances had your mother grown up? Was it similar to your father's? Um, so they both kind of grew up against the backdrop of the Lebanese Civil War. Uh, my mum also had it tough in different ways. She was raised by her grandmother. Um, so her parents had divorced and her dad had remarried and was living in Syria. And right before she met my dad, her grandmother passed away. And so it was kind of a really tumultuous time for my mum. And um, she realized that there weren't really many prospects for her in Lebanon. So it was kind of serendipitous that she met my dad at that time and decided to get married and come to Australia. Did she have wealth? Did she have property in Lebanon? She did. She inherited an apartment. Um, and that's also a funny story because her grandfather was basically a gambler and he had gambled and won all this money. So her grandmother, being the boss ass bitch that she is, was like, let me just take this money and build an apartment block with it. And she wanted to secure my mother and her sister's futures. So she made sure that uh, each of them had an apartment in their name. So when my mum came to Australia, after a few years of like struggling financially, she actually sold that apartment and used the money to purchase our first house, our first family home in Punchbowl. In Punchbowl, and yeah. this is where you uh, eventually uh, grew up in. Exactly. Were you born into a big family? Uh, well, I'm the eldest of eight children. Eight, really? Yeah. yeah. So what sort of re where, where does that put you in the family? I mean, what sort of... Uh, relationship do you have with the eight, the, the seven that came after? <laughs> uh, we all kind of have a really different relationship because they're all really um, quirky people. They're their own humans. Um, so seven of us being girls, we've kind of formed this really incredible bond against my poor little brother. And although he's really in touch with his feminine side and his emotions, which is lovely. <laughs> but um, the pressure was always kind of put on me to be the exemplary older sister to kind of pave the way and I suppose I internalized a lot of that pressure and was bolstered by that to make sure that I finished my law degree you know I got the grad job that I wanted and really pushed myself. What sort of relationship did you have with your parents when you were growing up? Um, so my parents are super super awesome chill people. Uh, they were, my dad was a little bit strict on me growing up um, about weird things though, like he would let me go out with boys and like hang out with them, but then he was really weird about body piercings and he didn't, he wouldn't like, for example, let me get a belly ring when I was 14 years old. <laughs> was that the desire that you had at the time? Yeah, because everyone had one and I really, really wanted a belly ring. And then I eventually got one, right? And um, he found out because he accidentally saw it. And he looked at me with this like look of death in his eyes. And he was like, what is that? And I was like, dad, please, I'm 22. Like, can I please have this belly ring now? <laughs> and um, 
And so he basically threatened to disown me if I didn't take it out. So it's just bizarre. But something that um, really resonated with me once in my older years, um, he told me that God gave you free will. So I'm not the person to take that away from you. You can make your own decisions about your life and how you want to live it. And that freedom um, is beautiful in a sense. Mm. On that beautiful note, let's start uh, with some music. What can we play first, Sarah? Okay, so first is a banger from Natalie Imbruglia. Torn is one of my favourite childhood songs because I remember sneaking to turn on the TV to watch MTV when my mum wasn't around and not really understanding what she meant by naked on the floor. (laughs) I didn't realise it was a metaphor. Um, And I was like, ooh, Natalie. But um, I just love this song and it's become like a classic road trip song now. I thought I saw a man born to life. He was warm, he came around like he was dignified. He showed me what it was to cry. Well, you couldn't be that man I adore You don't seem to know, seem to care What your heart is for Well, I don't know him anymore There's nothing where he used to lie My conversation has run dry That's what's going on Nothing's fine, I'm torn I'm all out of faith This is how I
that 2000s hit was torn by Natalie Imbruglia that brought in today by slam poet activist Sarah Mansour. She is my guest on Out of the Box. Sarah, what was high school like? High school. What a wonderful time. (laughs) (laughs) Truly? Um, Look, I think... I always found high school in particular really difficult and that period really difficult because I always felt out of place, especially because people were always following trends and I despised that. Like I loved, you know, having my own sense of style, having my own kind of ambitions. And so I kind of found it hard to reconcile what I liked and who I was with what the general consensus was and in year seven I kind of like went through this period where like I didn't really have any friends and I was like going to the library and reading and then I realized that that wasn't the way I was going to survive through the next like six years so I kind of gave that up and and (laughs) kind of morphed into this like punch bowl gangster chick (laughs) that's when I started listening to Tupac and um yeah just just getting into rap and hip-hop and uh, actually at the end of year seven um, in 2005 was when the Cronulla riots happened. So I remember this like really weird kind of um, struggle with my identity because that year I had visited Lebanon and I had been made to feel that I was Australian in Lebanon. Um, And then coming back, I was told that I wasn't Australian. So it was a really formative time in my life and a really formative event. Um, And that kind of paved the way for um, how I would be feeling and struggling with my identity for really most of my teens. And that's what got me into spoken word poetry. Can we talk about the Cronulla riots? Mm. What what do you remember of that day? Uh, So I remember that I was at home and hearing about it. I lived across the road from Punchbowl Park. And I remember that there was like... um, an impromptu meeting with about 60 or 70 Lebanese males and they just all convened in the park and were discussing what to do and how and if to retaliate. And, you know, my dad was there as well. And it was a really scary time. And um, I remember also like we had MSN, right? And I think my hotmail name, which is like really, really embarrassing now, was like Bootalicious Babe One or something. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) oh my goodness. Um, But... Yeah, I remember being thrown into all these like MSN chats and like Anglo people and Lebanese people just fighting and like being really nasty online. What was that? What what were the chats? Some online manifestation of the Cronulla riots? Yeah, 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 yeah. So like people were saying, um, you know, we grew here, you flew here. And then we were retaliating and saying, well, you came in chains and we came in planes. And it was just this really stupid rhetoric back and forth about who's Australian and who has a place in Australia. Um, And, you know, at the time that kind of alerted me as well, I think, to the issue of sovereignty never being ceded um, with the Indigenous peoples and and realising that just as much as we were migrants, so were the Anglo people here. Um, and that kind of alighted me to um, the struggles uh, with the Indigenous community. How did the girls at school respond to the Cronulla riots? That was interesting. What we actually did to, I suppose assert ourselves um, and 
reconcile what was going on, we actually wrote in big text across our arms, Leb for Life. And a, a lot of girls did that. And it was just their way of making, I suppose, standing up and making commentary about what was going on and saying, well, you know what, if you're telling us that we're not Australian, then we're going to be proudly un-Australian. Mm. What do you think the legacy is of that for a lot of young Muslim men and women that were coming of age at a time, mm. you know, born in Australia, coming of age at a time when something like that was to erupt in Australia? Mm. I mean, how do you think that that affects people's psyche ongoing? Is there mm. something in that? I think there is, uh, without delving too much into it, I think it's the idea of otherness and it um, kind of seeds this perspective that there's an us versus them narrative and somehow we're on one side and modern or white Australia's on the other side. Um, so it kind of uh, drives a lot of people, myself included, towards studying law and being socially and politically active and interested because I think that when your identity is politicised, you have no choice but to be political. And I think that's kind of what interested me in, you know, studying law, getting through it, and, and also um, writing and performing poetry. So in tribute to the resistance, what can we play now? Well, what we're playing now is Keep Your Head Up by Tupac. And the reason I picked this one in particular is because I love the feminist vibes. And also, uh, I used an excerpt of this in a rap compilation that I did when I was entering a Jeans for Jeans Day competition uh, concert in the top tier firm that I was working at. So I used Coolio's Gangster's Paradise as a bass and I interweaved um, Tupac, Biggie, Kanye, Kendrick into this rap compilation and I won. So there you go. <laughs> Some for my guys and Elijah and little girl named Corinne. Some say the black of the bed, the sweet of the juice. I say the dark of the flesh and the deep of the roots. I give a holler to my sister's own welfare. Tupac kids, if don't nobody else care. And uh, I know they like to beat you down a lot. And when you come around the block, brothers clown a lot. Don't cry, dry your eyes, never let up Forgive, but don't forget, girl, keep your head up And when he tells you you ain't nothing, don't believe him And if you can't learn to love you, you should leave him Cause sister, you don't need him And I ain't trying to catch up, I just call him how I see You know what makes me unhappy? that When brothers make babies and leave a young mother to be a half And since we all came from a woman, got our name from a woman And I came from a woman why we take from our women Why we rape our women Do we hate our women I think it's time to kill for our women Time to heal our women Be real to our women And if we don't we'll have a race of babies That will hate the ladies That make the babies And since a man can't make one He has no right to tell a woman When and where to create one So will the real men get up? I know you're fed up ladies But keep your head up Suddenly the ghetto didn't seem 
Keep Your Head Up is the name of that two-pack track brought into FBI Radio today by Sarah Mansour, lawyer, creative director, founder of the Bankstown Poetry Slam, and today my guest on this show, Out of the Box. Sarah, tell me about the poem Shades of Anger. Sure. So that poem essentially was what really sparked my passion for spoken word poetry. So basically, um, I had kind of been uh, exposed to spoken word poetry before but this was the one that changed my life and everyone has that moment where something happens and it sparks something and for me that was the poem Shades of Anger by Rafif Ziara. So she's a Palestinian poet and it came up on my Facebook feed, I can't remember how, but she repeats a line in her poem, I am an Arab woman of colour and we come in all shades of anger. And that resonated with me so much because I wear the hijab, so I'm visibly Muslim. And I always felt that I had to internalize my anger about what was going on. Um, I felt that I had to be the super, super nice Muslim, you know, smiling at random people, holding the door for people. Not that I wouldn't do that anyway, but I felt like it was an obligation so that I could positively represent the Muslim community and try and offset the negative stereotypes that were kind of rampant. And still are rampant, really. Uh, and so he was Rafif Ziyara, you know, unapologetic, 
angry and just repeating this line and channeling her anger in such a beautiful, creative way. And that's what really got me into writing and performing poetry. Not long after that, I performed my first ever spoken word poem. How did you first discover the format of slam poetry? I think the first time I was at a Palestinian fundraising event in Auburn or Granville and Zohab Z Khan was performing and that was the first time that I had seen spoken word poetry. And and what happened at that event? Um, yeah, he was just kind of going for it and I don't really remember much from the event. I, I really just remember that, I mean, I was impressed by it, but... I didn't really connect with it like I did with Rafif's poem. So what was the process of you falling into seeing slam poetry for the first time? You've now got this awareness of the power of poetry Mm. and performing slam poetry yourself. So I actually kind of got into it with my friend Ahmad Aradi. So around the same time that I was, um, you know, getting into it, watching videos online. Um, Ahmad went and performed and made it to the Australian Poetry Slam finals. So it's it's actually quite funny because he liked my friend and I liked his friend. So that's how we started hanging out and then sharing poetry with each other. And then we ended up ditching the friends and then just became friends (laughs) and going to these poetry events together. I went to watch him perform at the finals. And then that's when we realized that there weren't any poetry slams in Western Sydney. And, you know, both of us lived in Western Sydney and we were so tired and didn't want to pay the petrol of like driving out to Newtown into the city all the time to perform or to engage in spoken word poetry events. And that's when we decided to start the Bangsam Poetry Slam. How many people showed up to the first one? So the first one was a very humble 80 people. And it was probably mainly like our extended family <laughs> friends. Um, but then the event started to grow really from word of mouth. And I think that it demonstrated what the need was in the community to have a safe platform for young people from diverse backgrounds to express themselves. So over time, that number jumps from like 150 to 200 to 250. And now we regularly get between anywhere between 200 to 400 people at our Poetry Slam events. And what happens? What does a Bankstown Slam poetry event look like? So it's a monthly event on the last Tuesday of every month. We have poets that come on the night a little bit earlier than the starting time. They sign up and they've got an original work that they've prepared. And then we draw random names out of a hat and that determines the order of the performers. And they're judged by randomly chosen members of the audience. So basically I just have chocolates that I peg at people and I decree that they become judges and then we have silly prizes so nothing really um, to you know reward them because we don't want them to feel that their emotional anguish or their passions um, will actually reward them with something um, that's that's you know monetary so we have like silly two dollar prizes and and squishy slime thing and Whatever, whatever we can find at the reject shop. What what sort of impact does something like a slam poetry now a monthly thing, mm. uh, uh, obviously taken very seriously by the community? What does that have? What what sort of impact does that have on a community like Bankstown? Mm. Well, I know anecdotally that people have told me that 
it's so rewarding for them to know that they can go to an event surrounded by people that are like them and people that aren't like them as well and to be able to share their stories and have those stories resonate with other people and to connect like I know that that's really important for a lot of people but then also the poetry slam has been studied by Dr Jen Scott Kerwood of Sydney Uni and she said that it basically creates this like third space. It's a space that's not school or home or work, but it's a space that people can come together with this shared uh, objective of connecting and learning and that information sharing and cultural sharing is really important to social cohesion and bolstering like community and those feelings of like safety and security. Have there been examples of people that have come through um, slam poetry or that have been changed by it in some way that I guess you can feel like you've been part of that in a way? Mm, uh, one person that I think of straight away is Bilal Hafter. So Bilal started coming and performing at the slam probably around 2013. And he was just keen as a bean, like he would come every single month with a brand new poem that he had memorized. And we actually had to invent the rule that you, um, we had to like draw random names out of a hat because otherwise he was performing every single month and we wanted to give other people a chance, which was quite funny. Um, but Bilal really, really took it on and being a person of Lebanese background and also Muslim um, and, and you know, like he really looks Arab. Uh, I think it was important for him to show who he was to the world. And now uh, off the back of that, he met his wife, Iman. And so they got married, they, they met through the poetry slam and got married. And I also was able to refer him to the Sydney Story Factory for a job they had open and he worked his way up and now he's the storyteller in chief of the Parramatta Centre. So, um, you know, it's just it's an incredible story and it really shows to me the importance of community projects like this. The power of the slam. What can we mm. play now, Sarah? So now we're playing Hey Now by London Grammar. This is one of my first um, favourite songs from London Grammar. I love all their music. But this one in particular, um, there's a line where she sings um, Letters Burning By My Bed For You. And that line I thought was so poetic and it really resonated with me. And it um, inspired me to include that in one of my poems talking about homophobia in the Muslim community.
That was London Grammar with Hey Now, brought into FBI Radio today by Western Sydney leader and slam poet Sarah Mansour. This is Out of the Box, and I'd like to take a quick moment to mention mid-interview that FBI Radio, as you may have heard, is reliant on your support to stay on air. So you, if you enjoy listening to the stories of the likes of Sarah Mansour, even half or a quarter as much as I enjoy um, bringing them out, uh, please head over to fbiradio.com slash support or give us a buzz, 8-3-3-2-9-4-5. At $10 a month, it's cheap, but it is certainly very meaningful. Sarah, where did the idea to become a lawyer come from? Well, I kind of got into law because... I was really conflicted at the time when I was finishing my HSC and the only time I had done creative writing was during the HSC in paper one. So I wasn't really aware that that was something that I was particularly good at at the time. And I was thinking that I might do physiotherapy and my best friends from primary school were gassing me up. They're like, oh, you'd be a great lawyer. Why don't you do law? You're passionate about equality. And I'm like, yeah, I am. Okay, I will do it. And that's kind of how I got into law. Tell me about university. University, also an interesting time. Um, I had my, like I said, my best friends from primary school with me. Um, One of them dropped out in the first year. So it was mainly my other friend and we kind of got through it. Uh, At the time, I was working anywhere between like two to three jobs at the, t- at the same time that I was studying um, full-time. And then also I started the Poetry Slam uh, at the beginning of 2013. So kind of, I think it, that was my second or third year, third year actually. So yeah, kind of always trying to balance all these conflicting um, interests and, and priorities. And so I, I didn't really enjoy um, some aspects of 
my degree, I think, as much as I should have, like the socialising aspect, probably because I was just a bit too busy. So how do you get a job in law through slam poetry? Well, that is a really great story. So as you all know, Brian Brown, one of the best and most renowned actors in Australia, um, he has a theatre named after him in Bankstown at the Bankstown Learning Centre. And at the time that they were just about to open it, they were taking Brian through um, and showing him a tour of the centre and and the theatre. And they asked me and Ahmed to go and perform poetry. And uh, I remember that day because I was like feeling a little bit flaky. I was like, I don't know if I should go. And I ended up going and meeting Brian. And he was so amazingly humble and down to earth and was basically listening to me and my life story and my passions. And I was just yapping on about myself and how I loved my, my studies and how I love poetry. And I come from this big family. And he ended up going and speaking to the chief executive partner of a top tier firm and letting them know that I existed. And if they didn't hire me, then they would be basically like fried potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> and so he was basically my, my in to a top tier firm. And it's funny because I thought because of my hijab that I would never get into a top tier firm and then I started writing and performing poetry because I was so passionate about showing the world who I was and then it was because of my hijab that I got into a top tier firm. What was it like working in a top tier firm? Interesting as well. I think the pressure is hard. You know, it's really long hours and there is a sense of camaraderie with your team. Um, there were obviously ups and downs, um, but there was there's also some really funny things that happened. Like I remember when I was working as a paralegal, um, being in the lifts and someone asked me if I was going to go to Friday night drinks. And I was like, oh, no, I don't drink. And they're like, oh, you don't drink. Uh, do you ever drink? And I'm like, no, no, I've never had any drinks. And they're like, oh, but you never, not even a sip? I'm like, no, 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 I've never tried alcohol. They're like, what? So what, what do you do? I'm like, I don't know. I just eat. Like, <laughs> that's how we socialize. We just go out and eat. How did you deal with the workload? Um, it was really tough. It was, I think it was hard to balance. And sometimes something gives way. And I think for me in that first year, it was really my health. I stopped going to the gym. I kind of also developed anxiety in a sense. I was really nervous about, I guess, proving myself and being the best and... Um, that takes its toll on you and so it was situational but I did kind of have anxiety and it got bad to the point where I couldn't I didn't want to go to work anymore like I would be up at like 3am in the morning worried about work and and that was just the way that I personally dealt with it and that was my experience and I obviously don't speak for everyone but yeah I, I just found it it was a lot of pressure. So now at the age of 25, you've started and ended a law career, which is a <laughs> pretty, pretty impressive feat. Tell me about the Thank decision you. to exit law. Yeah, so I mean, I don't know if my journey with law is over because I am so passionate about the law. I just, I think that I was kind of put in property law and it's not something that I'm particularly passionate about. And so I've taken a bit of a break now. Uh, I am working uh, at a not-for-profit, working with refugee artists, which is something that I find really fulfilling. 
and exciting. And um, yeah, I don't know. I really don't know what the next step is. I kind of feel like I'm having a quarter life crisis. <laughs> what do we play now in tribute to a quarter life crisis then, Sarah? So now we will play Never Let Me Go by Florence and the Machine. And um, this is a song that really got me through the tough times. Looking up from underneath Fractured moonlight on the sea Reflections still look the same to me As before I went under And it's peaceful in the deep Cathedral where you cannot breathe No need to pray, no need to speak Now I'm under
Never Let Me Go, taken from Florence and the Machine and put into the stories of Sarah Mansour. She is my guest on Out of the Box today. Sarah, two Fridays ago, a alleged white supremacist terrorist walked into a mosque in Christchurch and mm. killed 50 innocent people during prayer. How did news of the massacre get to you? The first I heard of it was I actually received a video link on my phone. So I actually didn't know what it was at the time and I clicked on it and it was the shooting being carried out. I thought it was a video game and so I was like watching intently being like, why would someone send me this? And then when I realized what it actually was, I was just absolutely shocked and I started looking at the news and then when news came that it was a shooting in a mosque in Christchurch, that's when I started to get really scared and, and really upset and started checking in with all my friends and we just were talking about it, trying to figure out what was going on. It was a really big um, time of confusion. This was on a Friday, only two weeks ago from mm. today. How do you spend the weekend afterwards? I actually spent the weekend just at home. I didn't do anything. I didn't go out. I couldn't bring myself to do anything. I know some people were going to vigils and um, attending and, and making themselves seen and heard or visiting the mosques to kind of show solidarity. But for me, the way that I felt that I had to deal with it was just kind of closing in a little bit. And um, yeah. What, what happened when you went into work on Monday? Yeah, so that was really hard because I had been home all weekend. I hadn't really seen any humans. And I went into work on Monday and I kept telling myself, I'm going to be strong and it's all fine. And the first person that I saw was an Indigenous colleague and she's much older than I am. So I really see her as like a mother figure. She came up to me and she hugged me and she said, I'm so sorry. And I apologize on behalf of the Indigenous community for what's happened to your community. And that's when I lost it. I <laughs> just like bored my eyes out and I was really feeling like super emotional. And um, I guess I allowed myself that moment to to cry for the victims and for their families because I've just felt it so viscerally the pain that they were feeling I suppose because it's so close like it's just across the Tasman Sea I visited Christchurch and it really just felt like it was so close to home for me how do you begin to process the grief of that uh so what I ended up doing was I wrote my thoughts down um which ended up forming the basis of an op-ed in the Guardian and like putting my work out there was part of that healing process, but also just reading poetry and writing poetry. It's something that I realized that I always turn to in times of trauma and upheaval and sadness. I feel that that those words and, and either crafting words or reading words kind of in, promotes a process of healing. So could we share some of that poetry today on FBI Radio? Absolutely. Um, this is something that I wrote. Uh, probably on that weekend. The scar lingers sanguinely. Time carpets the pain until all we feel is the echo of it. But the wound did not forget the taste of blood. Another tragedy. And we remember how much blood there was last time. And the time before that. And the time before that. And how painful it is to always be in this state of healing and bleeding. Thank you. Sarah, 
how can what can we play to finish this episode of Out of the Box today? Mm, I think we'll end on a bit of a hopeful note and a poetic note. So I would say that this is my favourite song at the moment. I think it's probably the most poetic song in the whole world. And I know it's a cover of the original, but Hallelujah by Jeff Buckley. Jeff's a babe. This song is bathing. So happy to end it on that note. And on that, an enormous thank you to my producers, Bree Jones and Nicole DePalo and Sarah Mansour. Thank you very much for being my guest thank on you. Out of the Box today. to her kitchen chair and she broke your throne and she cut your hair and from your lips she drew
podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.